Well, what do you what do you guys think? Are you ready? Oh, we're ready. <laughs> All right. Well, um, this is Ryan with Pendleton Outfitters Podcast, and I want to start by saying that with this podcast series, I think we're going to have a, a variety of different types of episodes that we'll be bringing to you. But I'm very excited for for this one, which I'm going to call the Conservation Conversation. And we're going to have our first conservation conversation today. I'm joined by two friends. Lynn Tompkins. Of Blue Mountain Wildlife. And, and Carl Sheeler. Yeah, so two two key players in Blue Mountain Wildlife, a local conservation organization. And I wanted to paint a picture by just sharing a brief story that I remember from your organization back from high school. And, uh, you know, the, the, the work you folks have done has been on my mind. And I feel like maybe this business is a good opportunity to kind of highlight the fine work you folks have done and, and share what you're doing with the community a little bit. Um, so in high school, it was, I think, Mrs. Bixler, a biology teacher. And I, I think she's still there today. Do you know? Yes. Yep. Okay. She's still working there. She, first of all, she did the coast trip, which was really cool. But another field trip that she organized was to go to Blue Mountain Wildlife. And um, we got to tour the facilities and visit with you and others, Lynn. Um, but one piece that stood out in my mind, and I'm not going to describe this with good justice, I'm afraid, but there was a covered f- facility that we were standing under, and maybe you or somebody else was holding two uh, birds of prey, and there was a hawk and an owl. Yep. And you started by describing the hawk and some of its features, the way it hunts and, and operates, and you let it go, and it flew across the facility to the other side. Big, strong wings just beating and flapping. You could hear them just whipping through the whole building. And then you proceeded to talk for a couple minutes about the owl and uh, its methods of, of operation. And it's, it's uh, hunting at night. It's more stealth and quiet. And you, you let this thing go, and it was like you just pushed the mute button. <laughs> and this owl just flew across the building, but you would have had no idea if your eyes were closed. It was completely silent. And so um, that's just a, a brief story about something that stood out in my mind that was a, a fun little, you know, fact uh, to get interest. So I guess let's go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about your organization and your mission. Well, Blue Mountain Wildlife is a, a nonprofit organization. We're funded by, um, you know, memberships and uh, mostly by the public. We have our mission has three parts, uh, rehabilitation, uh, research and education. So those are all three, you know, equally important. Um, we are a small organization, uh, staff wise, um, but we cover a huge geographic area of Eastern Oregon and Eastern and Central Washington. So it's like an area the size of the state of New York, basically. <laughs> and uh, we usually admit somewhere in the neighbor of a thousand birds a year. Um, Two-thirds of those are generally raptors, birds of prey. And, um, you know, we can are able to release about half of those. You know, half of them, when they first come, are injured so badly or or sick to the extent that we can't save them. But most of the rest we're able to release back to the wild. We, before COVID, did a lot of (laughs) presentations in schools, which is probably where, well, or had school field trips. COVID kind of interrupted that, and we were just about over COVID, and then now we have avian influenza. So that's also kind of um, prevented us from doing, we we don't do much offsite at all anymore. Uh, But we have uh, uh, built a new facility there for our education birds. So we have a really, um, back from when you came to visit, a much nicer place to display our education birds, mm-hmm. bigger areas for them to fly. And um, so that's kind of where we're at now. Yeah. Uh, just point of clarification, the <laughs> avian influenza is not a threat to humans. Uh, that's, it's not Correct. like uh, the, the, the pandemic that we just went through, but uh, it is a threat to our facility and to the birds that we care for and uh, our education program because it's so contagious. And uh, right now we have a, a, a fairly serious infestation, if you will, oh. in, in, in our area and mm-hmm. particularly waterfowl. Uh, um, and so we are no longer uh, during this pandemic going to be taking waterfowl in for rehabilitation because the threat to our facility is too great and, mm-hmm. and the state uh, fish and wildlife has asked us not to do that 
I see. Yeah, and I think that the you know discussions about duck hunting is is probably where I first heard about avian influenza. Mm-hmm. But can you tell me a little bit about you know is it a recurring illness? Is it different from other uh, pandemics for for birds? Or can just go a little bit more on on what well, we're dealing with currently. It does seem to come and go. I mean, the last outbreak before this was 2014 and 15. Um, and it was a much smaller outbreak than what we're currently seeing. And influenza, it started over in Asia, Europe. It first was identified in North America in December of 2021. Mm-hmm. So then we kind of watched it move across the country. And you probably have heard about like the, the thousands and thousands, millions actually of birds, uh, poultry, domestic poultry operations were euthanized when it would come into that facility. Um, it's just, uh, I think that's the one of the biggest concerns is its effect it has on the poultry industry. So all birds can get influenza. Humans are, are, very, are not at all at risk. But where it's most common is waterfowl because they gather in such large flocks. I wanted to ask real quick, is it because of their gathering or just their, their great lengths of travel? Both. Well, there's, yeah, I mean, they spread it because they migrate. Yeah. Um, but it's because they, they gather in such large flocks. And so it's easy to, it's a, caused by a virus. It's easy to spread mm. from bird to bird. And then raptors um, are another um, group of birds that are really affected because they scavenge on the dead waterfowl. So is it, so transmission is respiratory, but also in the flesh of... It, transmission or... is by, is liquid. So whether it's um, fluids from the bird or um, uh, waste, you know, poop, bird poop, basically, sure. um, that it spread that way from, okay. from bird to bird. And people can spread it by handling a sick bird. And then, like, if you have chickens or, or you know, poultry of your own... You don't want to find, like, if you handle a, a bird that you find out in the wild that's sick, you, you, if you pick that bird up and you get the virus on your hands, then you can spread it to your own mm. chickens at home. So you don't want to do that. You want to just leave things alone out in the wild. You want to you can call and report it to Fish and Wildlife. But people can, can spread it. So we want to be really careful. I guess, yeah, I guess that brings me to a question I wanted to ask on this topic, which is, you know, what can, what can the general person do? And also those who have domestic birds, chickens and turkeys that they run in their yards, do they need to be doing anything differently or what can we do to avoid some transmission here? Um, You need to minimize or eliminate, if you can, contact with wild birds. So like, um, I tried putting a big little piece of shade cloth over my chicken coop, my, the out yard, um, to keep, you know, the wild birds from coming in. I mean, those are not the sparrows and doves and things aren't the biggest carriers of influenza, but just minimize any contact with wild birds, especially waterfowl. Um, and that's, that's really about all you can do because we cannot, we can't treat it. It's not, not successfully. And the, the birds don't seem to follow governmental guidelines for... They, they do <laughs> no, not. They, they do not. And, you know, like over the summer, um, we were watching um, USDA website. You know, you can check how things are going all over the country. And the, the numbers were going down as, over the summer. As far as just as, uh, cases? Cases that, that were both wild and domestic cases. Okay. But then <clears throat> when migration started in the fall things and now through the winter numbers are going back up again oh so it's hard to know there are some folks that think maybe this is going to become endemic it's just going to be something that's with us hopefully that's not the case but we'll just have to see Uh, right now it certainly is still here and Oregon has been pretty hard hit uh, recently there's Mm. been some commercial operations over in the valley and just the other day there was another i can't remember, but it was on the east side. So it's something that is definitely here right now and we need to be careful of. So you want to just minimize contact with wild birds. Sure. Of your own, yeah. of yourself and your and your birds. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, you know, you've been in the industry long enough to probably see several cycles of something like this. Can you, can you give us maybe your outlook on how long this goes and what kind of 
you know, scope of damage this can may cause, or or is it just something runs its course and hopefully we're it's behind us in a few months? You know, I, you know, I wish I could answer that. <laughs> um, tip the last one, it was like 2014, 2015, and and it was done. I'm. You know, numbers are going up right now again. So it's been a year. Mm-hmm. It's been a year. It, it, like you said, it may. There are those that think it may become endemic, something that's just here always yeah. that we have to deal with. Um, we'll just have to wait and see what happens in the spring. Sure. The virus is very hardy. Cold and wet doesn't slow it down at all. A bird dies. Their virus is still active and live. So you know, a scavenging. Bird, eagle, hawk, whatever, coyote comes along. You know, they can, the, the mammals aren't going to spread it, although there, there actually are some mammals that do seem to be fairly susceptible. Um, um, r- raccoons, fox, uh, probably scavenging. Mm-hmm. But, you know, animal, small mammals, they're smaller carnivores that yeah. tend to. But we've, um, we've, taken, we've taken the position that it is going to become uh, something that we have to deal with regularly in the future and Mm -hmm. one of the things that we've done to do that is a fairly significant investment in a uh, facility upgrade that includes a new intake building so maybe the ability to just uh, separate and quarantine a little better we have to we have to be able to analyze and quarantine as birds are coming in so again one of the things that we've done in partnership with the state, is to uh, stop taking in waterfowl. Period. We, we're just, we're just, it's too big of a risk to us. Mm-hmm. Second thing we've done is built this in a very proactive way. Built this uh, 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 quarantine facility, an intake facility. So there's three separate buildings. The first building is where we bring the animals uh, in uh, and just do our basic documentation. Then we go to a separate building where we uh, do the uh, overall analysis of the situation, including whether or not it might be carrier of, of influenza. If we think it is, that's the end of the line for, for that uh, uh, bird. Mm-hmm. If we think it is not, if we're, if we're confident that it's not going to be a threat to us, we move it into the third piece of the facility, which is a quarantine facility. Mm. And uh, that... The total investment in that, I, I think, uh, Lynn, we've got over forty thousand dollars into that, which is one of it's the second biggest investment that we've made in the facility since its inception. The uh, the biggest, of course, is our big education uh, bird education pens, which are was was something on the order of eighty thousand dollars. Ninety So it's almost half the price of of our our education facility. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but again, it's necessary because uh, we have to be proactive, and uh, bringing that bringing influenza into the facility puts the entire facility and all of our birds, education and rehab birds, at risk because we uh, we would have to depopulate uh, as the as the uh, agriculture community has done in the past. That's an interesting <clears throat> point I wanted to bring up just about conservation and how this may be an example is that the actions you're taking are not. I mean, in some cases they are maybe to save one specific animal, but, but the goal at large is for, for a greater than one. So to have to make some difficult decisions about trying to rehab a bird, mm-hmm. you decide it's not safe for the population and you, you've got to let it go. That's some tough decisions to make that are indirect, well, but for the greater good, I guess. And that's kind of how rehab is. And that's, I think that's really why there, um, there aren't that many rehabbers. We're the only facility on the East side. Yeah. There's, a, there's, um, and it's, you know, we, we get in, have interns that come in, and a lot of them are interested in rehab. And then they, you know, the reality is, you can't fix. Well, half of what we get, we cannot fix. So, yeah. so you have to be able to deal with, uh, you know, thinking of euthanasia as a gift in some cases. Mm. When you're doing the individual animals, yeah, boy, my heart goes out yeah. to the triaging person at your facility. <laughs> but your 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 point is is a really important one, I think. In that, uh, in the past, I think people have, as particularly why you know my background is wildlife management. I was a professional wildlife biologist for my whole career, and we manage populations. We don't manage individuals. Mm-hmm. So a lot, of, especially state fish and game, uh, and and to some extent the uh, federal fish and game. They look at what Lynn does as as a feel good thing. It's good for education. 
uh, and it makes people feel good. They have a place they can bring the, the animals. But one of the things that we have found, uh, Lynn's, Lynn's effort, well, although we operate on a shoestring, uh, Lynn's effort is one of the most effective and successful rehab facilities in the country. Mm. Uh, her re- release, successful release rate is very high. And um, we have started to uh, do research on, on the efforts of rehab on the population dynamics. Mm. And what we're finding <clears throat> is that the type of work that we're doing does have population level effects. We are actually influencing uh, uh, the community, the, the avian community, in a way that a uh, few other actions do. I love that because, yeah, at surface level, it's easy to say, well, great, they're saving a few birds. And that, like you said, that feels great. People want to see the, the turnaround and some animals released. But is there a long-term, you know, lasting yeah. effect that changes Get the, the area? Get them back into the breeding population. And we're, we're showing that that does occur. Mm-hmm. That, that study is actually going to be published, I think, in January. So that has looked at data from... Initially, it was looking at our data, yeah. wildlife, but then they looked at several large facilities across the country that did a lot of raptors and uh, just to see the post-release success mm-hmm. of the, um, the, the rehab birds, and it was significant. You know, initially, the first year, they didn't do quite as well, but by three, four, five years out, they're performing uh, just as well as their wild counterparts. For the un, you know the healthy yeah and for, for, long, for long-lived so. uh, low fecundity species like golden eagles mm-hmm. um, that's significant uh, so if you can get a golden eagle back into the breeding population very important we've got uh, we've got the the mitigation I, I use quote, air quotes there mitigation for for uh, uh, wind power being basically mitigation for transmission right now where Fish and Wildlife Service is looking at uh, deflectors on on power lines as, as appropriate mitigation to offset the impacts from wind power. Well, that's patently absurd. They're both forms of mortality. They both need to be mitigated. Mm-hmm. You can't use one addressing the impact of one to address the impact of the other. On the other hand, rehabilitating and successfully releasing uh, golden eagles back into the breeding population is true mitigation it mm-hmm. truly o- offsets uh, the loss of a of a bird to a to a wind strike or a power line strike i see and what may be difficult to measure from your perspective because you're probably measuring specifically bird populations but can you speak to some of the other you know passive benefits of a healthy bird population in a given area or just how you know it's like symbiotic that one healthy population will lead to another to another, and, and you've all of a sudden got just a healthy ecosystem. Well, I mean, the one, one of the messages I w- always used to say when we were in the classroom is we are, humans are part of the whole environment. N- not, we're not separate from raptors, and I mean, we're separate species, obviously, but we are part of the whole picture. And mm-hmm. if part of the system is not doing well, it affects everything. So what we do to wildlife or the environment, um, if we damage it, we're damaging ourselves. So it's all connected. We, we, you can't separate one from the other. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the examples, I think, of that, that uh, one of the greatest successes we've had of late uh, is dealing with baby barn owls. Uh, <laughs> barn owls nest in, in haystacks, and when they come to move the hay, we end up with a, a lap full of, of uh, hungry babies that have to be reared and, and released. And uh, Lynn has been very successful at doing that. Well, now one of the things we're doing is going out where, where we have the haystacks, we're going out putting up nest boxes so that they have an alternative to the haystack. Mm-hmm. And those birds that we're releasing are very important controls for uh, small mammalian uh, species that impact agriculture. So the comp, that, that, that uh, synergy there between yeah. our, our restoration efforts and agriculture community is significant. And they have learned to partner with us and contact us quickly uh, 
And, and yeah. what was the, what was our record uh, number of baby burnouts? Oh yeah, when we, a couple of years we've had over four hundred in a year. Mm. We usually have anywhere 100, 150. That's a population effect. I mean, that's an ecological effect. <laughs> yeah, a local ecological effect. You cannot yeah. deny that. And the yeah, and the way we raise them, um, it is called hacking, and it mimics what the parents do. And so, like at this our Washington Center, the the owls go out into these nest boxes and. And yeah, it's pretty amazing. Now, now we have wild owls nesting in some of the boxes, and they will feed the babies that we put out mm. that have lost their home from the haystack getting moved or whatever. So they actually have interaction with a wild adult. They're and so when they fledge, they've got this role model right <laughs> handy. It works really, really well. And we've I've lost track. Um, I think we're over six thousand barn owls now. Wow, babies that have been since two thousand six. Was when the first year we started hacking. And how, how many uh, how many mice? Oh, and those babies. Baby eats a day? Well, uh, you know when they're big enough to go out to a box, when they're about a month old, they can eat six or eight mice. That's six or day. eight. And that's then, six or eight dollars worth of mice. Yeah, now those the mice they didn't times. used to cost a dollar, but they cost they a do. dollar <laughs> a piece now. Everything's yeah. more expensive after Food the is, pandemic. Oh yeah, supply chain issues. Yeah, supply, you're not yeah. kidding. Oh my goodness. But um, um, but yeah, but there but it's all we're all in it together. We're not separate, and so we need to take care of the the world around us because it, yeah. it's going to come back and. I appreciate your perspective on that. And I guess I wanted to take an opportunity if we could back up a little bit to, to talk about the roots of Blue Mountain Wildlife. And I guess, were you the founder and, and how did you see this start to take place just from grassroots beginnings? Well, back in the 80s, I was working as a tech, vet tech at Pendleton Veterinary Clinic. And um, there was a young vet there for about a year that was really interested in raptors and rehab and fish and wildlife. I'm not sure how they found out about him, but anyway, they just started bringing um, hawks and owls and to eagles, the vet clinic. To the vet clinic, okay. and to the, his name was Dr. Cooney, Jeff Cooney, and I was working with. I was the only back then. There was only one tech at the clinic, and um, and so I was the one that would help him with with the birds. And so we worked together for about a year, and then he moved on. And my husband, Bob, and I, we just kind of kept on doing the rehab because there were no other rehabbers in the area. So it just kind of grew from there. I got to tell a story on her because uh, when I I was first working for the Umatilla Tribes as their wildlife manager, I heard about this this, uh, crazy woman living in an A-frame up near Indian Lake. And... uh, (laughs) We had, I think we had a rehab bird for her. Uh, had come into the to to my office, and and I went up there. She and Bob were living in this off-grid A-frame house in we the had solar in the mountains. <laughs> a small a small solar array. There are cars there are cars now driving around with bigger solar arrays than they had, and um, uh, they their backyard was full of these hand, homemade pens, uh, very very nicely done, uh, and. Uh, she had, I don't know, maybe a dozen uh, birds that she was rehabbing up there, all out of their own pockets while they were trying to, to uh, make a living, as I recall, grooming. Yeah, we were grooming dogs yeah. back then, yes. Um, she's been doing it a long time, and, and <laughs> always, it seems, with a facility that's inadequate and, and uh, uh, the success, again, that, that uh, Blue Mountain Wildlife has in terms of releasing birds mm-hmm. belies that fact. It's... Uh, Absolutely amazing what she's been able to do with very little with, resources, but lots of support. Lots of support. That. Our biggest, our biggest funders uh, are are the, our members. People, yeah, yeah, and they are from all over the world now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just amazing that uh, uh, that we get uh, letters of support and funding uh, from. At least, m- well, the the most mostly it's. You know, Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington, but there's amazing a lot of people now from the west side of both Oregon and Washington. I think the newsletter helps a lot. Mm-hmm. The email goes out and lots of people see it, but it's been really gratifying, especially now you hear about so many nonprofits having a hard time, you know, yeah. making a go of it. And um, we have been really, really fortunate because people have been very supportive. Mm-hmm. And so were you were you working on 
birds before your vet tech career or those are just no, kind of connected? And no, you... I just, that I, rehab wasn't, really wasn't in my radar until I started working with Dr. Cooney. Mm. And then it was just like, well, there's nobody else doing it around here. So it, there's a need. Yeah. And it just kind of grew from there. <laughs> we, wow. I think we incorporated as a nonprofit in 1990. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And our facility is much improved, but we still need to build that hospital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's been just just a series of kind of outreach and community support to to yeah. get at least the the needs met and use what what you have available to just try to drive forward. We huh? have a, a very functional facility, yeah, <laughs> very but, functional. but like yourself, uh, Lynn's, Lynn and Bob's education effort touched an enormous number of young people. So there are tens of thousands of, of uh, kids that have been through the facility. They mm-hmm. understand the conservation work and the value of it. They've learned about uh, raptor ecology and, and uh, learned to appreciate that. And they continue to come back with their kids yeah. now and, and uh, in some cases grandkids. So mm-hmm. uh, it's really uh, heartwarming to see the effect particularly that the education program has had. Yeah. What do you feel like, is it difficult to do the dance between those different pieces you have to do of, you know, the, the main focus is, is getting the birds rehabbed and trying to get them rewilded, but to balance that with campaigning for funds to get by, but also to share your knowledge <laughs> with, with the children? and Well, I spend, I don't spend that much time campaigning for funds because I'm not very good at it and I don't like it. So. No, it's because she's got her head down trying to take care of birds. That's the hard thing. The more you know, time you have to spend out doing that, yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, years ago, um, the guy who developed our first website told me, you should do a monthly or a weekly newsletter or and I, I call it Lynn's Journal. And if you go to the website, you can see it. And it's been, we've been doing it for a long time now. And um, so once a, every Sunday, I sit down at the computer and, and do this. It, it just depends on what's happened the previous week. Mm-hmm. Um, this past one, we talked about the bald eagle that died of lead poisoning because that's what came in. Yeah. Um, so that's... I think that's helped a lot just to, be, to keep people aware and because it goes out email and so it doesn't cost a lot of money mm-hmm. to do it, you know, because I don't have to, you know, do postcards or letters or postage or anything like that. Yeah. Um, it just kind of all happened. <laughs> I'd like to pick up on one, uh, on one point she just made there about that eagle dying of lead poisoning. Yeah, I wanted to touch on the yeah. your get the lead out campaign. Get the lead out. It's so important. Um, I'm a hunter. Uh, I uh, wanted to start by saying that myself. Yeah. I'm a hunter. Look, yeah. the, the yeah, approach yeah, 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 was yeah. done very well, I believe, to not be, ba- you know, bashing. No, hunting or, is fine. I exactly. Nothing, it's not. Yeah. But but sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. So so, so the, one of the greatest anthropogenic impacts that we have on, on uh, raptors is lead poisoning. Uh, the, the number of birds that come in, Liz, Lynn tests them all and uh, has, has a data set that is rivaled by none in the country. And uh, she she finds lead poisoning at, to some degree in in is, is oh, it pretty much to say all the majority eagles, all eagles all eagles an amazing number of the budios you know red tails yeah. the, the hawks mm-hmm. even we've even find it in great horned owls which kind of surprised me that yeah. when I but, yeah um, but the, the pushback we get from from some of the hunting community is is surprising to me because. All the most all the hunters I know are conservationists, mm-hmm. and and their heart really is in protecting the resource that they enjoy so much. Yeah, and and most of us like toys, and 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 what better excuse to buy a new toy than if you've got an old rifle that won't spin copper, go buy a newer rifle that'll spin copper because it's a far superior projectile. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I shifted to copper, there was no looking back. Yeah. So let's talk, talk about that a little bit, I guess. It's, you know, it's obvious to me from the waterfowl hunting perspective, we, you know, we're, everybody's aware of the fact that we've gone from lead to steel with waterfowl because of the lead poisoning in the water, Yep. you know, and, and <laughs> nobody qualms with that because it's a requirement. You can't really get around it. And listen, you can still be an effective waterfowl hunter without using lead ammunition. And so what you're describing is more to the upland game bird 
piece of things to have lead and ammunition, right? Or is well, it also it's, rifle? It's bigger than that. It's, it's bigger than that because uh, it, many of the raptors are to some extent scavengers, and in mm. particularly the eagles uh, will will go down on road killed carcasses, or uh, they'll come into your to your kill site and and pick up scraps that you've left behind, um, including the the gut pile and or the part of the animal that was bloodshot from an explosion of lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, lead bullets, when they hit, they fragment and dissipate their energy out. And I don't know about you, but when, when I shoot a, when I shoot a, a elk or a deer with copper, sometimes I can actually, the cut that the bullet hole goes through, I can salvage because it doesn't, <laughs> the bullet doesn't blow up. It, it holds together in one piece and dissipates all its energy into the animal. Mm-hmm. So it's a more effective, consistent projectile. It doesn't waste uh, the meat that, that lead does, and it doesn't put that contaminant out there. Yeah. Um, when you leave a gut pile and the eagle sca- scavenge it, that one event can be enough to kill the eagle. Mm, it's yeah. it's wow. that bad. It's that poison. So it's I was curious, poisonous. I guess, I don't know if you can measure how often or, or what that... Because I pictured like, you know, BBs from a from a grouse being shot that were scattered throughout the ground that may look appealing. But do you feel like it's mostly from flesh remains that with, the lead with rap- poisoning? With raptors, it's most, mostly scavenging or that, you know, a lot of times we hit, we'll hit a bird and leave pellets in it that don't, that just doesn't cause the death of the bird. Yeah, It'll heal up sure. and it'll go forward. So uh, with lead, it only takes a few of those pellets to, to, to get into the gut of a, of a raptor and mm-hmm. that that gets into their bloodstream and it builds up. It can become chronic. Uh, Lynn, what was the it's, the blood read the reading well, on that that bald eagle that you had to euthanize? Well, the one I I just had to euthanize. It just all the only reading I got was high because my machine will only go up to sixty six micrograms per deciliter. So we measure the lead in millionths of a gram. How do you test that? Do you take a blood sample? I or? take a blood okay. sample and we have a machine mm-hmm. and. 10 micrograms per deciliter is considered toxic. If your child had 5 micrograms per deciliter of lead, that's 5 millionths of a, of a gram of lead in a tenth of a liter of blood. So it's a really small amount. Yeah. That would be toxic. And you're, if your child had that, you, you would be really, really concerned for all kinds. Because oh, yeah. And what are some of the side effects? Well, lead affects nerves. The nerves. Mm. So anything that has nerves. So your brain, thinking, decision-making, coordination, you know, muscle. All those things are affected by lead. And lead, it doesn't go away. It stays in the sim- in the system. So when we get a bird in, like I said, 10, we used to consider 20 micrograms per deciliter toxic. Now they've lowered it to 10. There is no normal amount of lead. The bird that died... All I know is it was over 66 micrograms. Oh, my goodness. But, and it was probably way higher than that because he had two, I, we took an x-ray, he had two tiny flecks of lead. Because it shows up, metal shows up really good on an x-ray. <clears throat> and it was in his gut. So, and they had been watching this bird that came from the Enterprise area for five days. So they and it had just been sitting on the ground. So That's what I was wondering. Did, what kind of behaviors was it? It wasn't doing anything. It couldn't fly. It couldn't do anything. It, you know, they finally decided there's something wrong, and so the people caught it and Fish and Wildlife. Let's see. They took it to Legrand, and it rode the it rode the tribal bus from Legrand to <laughs> the Pendleton. kayak public transit. Huh? Public transit. <laughs> they've, been, they've been big supporters. Yes. Oh, that's the great. Shout out to the tribes. Yeah. So you give but, a kayak call and. No, no, I I told him, yeah. yeah. I say, Joe, check out the schedule. I think in the Grand it meets at this time, and I'll meet the bus here. And um, the only bad part is it's only Monday through Friday. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, um, so that eagle hadn't been eating anything, that, but that lead had just been sitting in his gut. And just when it's exposed to the acids, or, you know, the digestive enzymes, then it's dissolved and it gets into the blood. And, um, we don't, a lot of the birds we get in, uh, they may come in with injuries, particularly eagles. Mm-hmm. They may come in with an injury. They may be found by the side of the road, but it was scavenging on, on a roadkill 
And it might have been scavenging on the roadkill because it was brain-addled from lead poisoning, mm. from scavenging gut piles. Mm. So there's, it's not, you know, a lot, as, as Lynn said, most of the eagles we get in are lead positive to some degree, and some of them chronic at levels that, that yeah, they can't never recover goes from. Away. Yeah, and you said there's not really a treatment. You, you probably can't, well, we, like, surgically remove BBs and see that well, it, there's a healthier trend or... We, it's, uh, or you like we don't try, yeah, we chelate. Surgery, trying to remove the pellets, is, is unless they're in the gut, they usually don't cause a problem, even if it's a lead oh, okay. projectile in the muscle. Mm-hmm. But if it's in the gut, and then, um, it, like if this bird had been able to live, what I would have tried to do is to feed it like um, some rat hide, rat skin, something that would form a pellet. Oh, it push it through. It would well. It either it would either be in the pellet and be cast as a pellet, or yeah, or it would go through. Mm. <laughs> one one time, this is kind of digressing a bit. We got a an eagle and it, it took an X-ray. It had a fish hook in its gut. Oh wow! A big old fish hook. So fortunately, he didn't really have lead, but I fed him a rat hide, most just mostly the skin, and because he was really hungry. And he cast, he cast the pellet the next day, and I X-rayed the pellet, and there was the hook. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, wow. Success. So that, <laughs> but unfortunately, we can't really, doesn't work that well with lead. But um worked really good with a big old fish hook. But the cost of chelating a bird like that to get the blood out of, or the, the lead out of its blood is significant. And mm-hmm. I think what, I think what people don't understand is that the, the they just don't have a sense of what it costs to rehab some of these birds. Yeah. We get an eagle in that's that's salvageable, that we think we can save. Um, if it's got lead poisoning, yeah, we heal the we heal the bone up, but but the lead poisoning and the chelation and then the recovery period after that can go on for months and months. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we have that bird in a condition where it can make it on its own again, we could have invested five to ten thousand dollars in, mm. in getting that bird healthy. And people, I've heard people say, "Well, that's a ridiculous amount of money to invest in one of these birds." But a very long-lived, low fecundity species like golden eagles—that is the only true offsetting morta- uh, a mitigation that we can have for mortality from wind power or or transmission. Yeah, um, is getting one back into the breeding population, and so that kind of investment's worth it. And I, I like your point there, just about, you know, the fact that you have only so many resources hands-on that you can work with, and so you're working at full capacity there. I guess if you tried to, you know, see the best solution to make change overall, it would be to inform folks about a better way, so that you know certain things maybe aren't happening as much in the field where you have to deal with that, and you can focus yeah, on some yeah. other issues because <laughs> there's that a never-ending amount of of uh, projects yeah. for you. It sounds yeah. like Mit- mitigate. There, there are di- three different parts of mitigation. One of them is avoidance, and if we can avoid the impact to begin with by educating people that something like lead is a, a, a threat to the, the resources that we're managing, that's a good one. Uh, the other one is to to uh, try to offset. Uh, those impacts when, that are unmitigable, uh, and and uh, one of the ways to do that, we think one of the only ways to truly mitigate is through rehabilitation of, of viable birds that can be reintroduced into the breeding population. Because those birds are, when they come in, those birds are are dead to the, as far as the population is concerned because they're they're removed. Yeah, because they're not actively engaged yeah. in yeah. the. So yeah. if we can, that's so if we can put them back out there, that's sure. Yeah, so I guess just to summarize this discussion again, we, we touched on it already, but the there's some probably some costs associated with changing your, your ammo habits, but as far as clean meat, your effect on the, the conservation of, of your area, and also even the performance of your, your projectiles will be improved if you can move off of lead. Is that your take? Well, abs- I mean, as a hunter... Uh, we're always into nifties. We want the, the newest and best thing. And I, my experience has been that copper is the newest and best thing. It's the most effective projectile. It, it's it's uh, uh, more consistent between each each uh, projectile is more consistent than lead. And and uh, clearly, when you when you smack an animal effectively with copper, it's a it's a much more effective way to transmit the energy from your weapon. And it's a good excuse to go buy a new gun. I, I was shooting a, a 1960 Winchester 100 308, and I thought that was the cat's meow. And I tried shooting copper out of it, 
and it just doesn't spin the bullet fast enough. So I was getting mm -hmm. inconsistent, especially at range, I was getting inconsistent hits. So I went ahead and got myself a new Tika, 6.5 Creedmoor. And now, now I'm yes. having a lot more fun. That's funny, actually, because I, was it not last spring, but the previous, I got the Tika, I think it's the T3X 6.5 Creedmoor. Same one, oh, same gun. love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, good, good light rifle for backcountry hunting. You can pack around, move with it. Fabulous. Accurate fabulous. as heck. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, I would say to those people that are on the on the fence about whether or not to make the change in their equipment, this is a really good excuse for a new toy. Go ahead and do it, and and um, and then feel good about it for the rest of your of your shooting time. You're going to be shooting a better projectile. You get you got a better weapon, uh, more fun, uh, and again, it's an excuse to buy. A new toy. <laughs> All right, no well, I, I like that. So I guess to get off of some of the gloom of avian influenza and and sickly birds, <laughs> um, <laughs> what are what are just some of the the you know, you touched a little bit on some of the high success rate that you have and the wide service area that, that you're able to cover. Is there some facts or some things that really stand out in your mind where you can say, all right, like we've done it, you know, this is, this is what this is all about. And here's some really cool things that we get to, to share that we've accomplished. <laughs> well, I, there's just so much more I want to accomplish. It's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a problem. It's a challenge. Um, I mean, we've, we've, you know, improved our facility all you know, continuing the equipment we have and, you know, like be able to test lead. And now we need, we, I want to build a hospital that mm -hmm. right now we have a, a one room clinic and it's very functional and we can do a lot of cool stuff there. But if we had a, it, it's not sustainable because, it's, you know, it's in an old double wide. So the next step is to build what I would like to have is a net zero energy, net zero water um, building that's sustainable and so we can be a demonstration project of how you can build sustainably yes. um, and plus have a, a a hospital that will you know last a lot longer than the current double wide that we have when you say uh, net zero can you can you elaborate uh, on that for folks that may not know um net zero energy use so that the building generates as much power as it use, utilizes so probably that would be solar panels on the roof um, and like our new building has, it's 250 feet long where education birds are. There's a lot of roof there that's not perfect. It doesn't face south, but there's enough south that we have a lot of space to put solar panels up mm -hmm. on it if we wanted or even mount them on a pole. But yeah, to have um, uh, generate, be able to generate power with solar, uh, but also build it so that it's very well insulated and and doesn't utilize, doesn't, it, it can stay warm or stay cool. Mm -hmm. So we don't need to generate a lot of, um, like heat in the winter or, you know, air conditioning in the summer. Sure. I'd um, also like to point out, I mean, it, it sounds great to say net zero from your perspective. That's a cool goal to, to put out there. But from a financial perspective, there's actually some benefit to, you know, hey, you may need yeah. to make some significant investments for it's solar panels. But it's a long-term vision, though. And again, what, what Lynn's talking about is a vision that, that uh, the the, the board and, and uh, Lynn and Bob uh, came up with a number of years ago. We made a fairly significant investment in design by Greenhammer uh, out of, uh, they're out of Portland, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, for a net zero facility, what would it take? Mm -hmm. um, and we started looking at the numbers. We haven't been able to pull those numbers together yet. And uh, part of the problem there is where we're located if we were back on the west side where everybody's, you know, a much bigger population, a lot more money back there, it might be something that would be fairly doable. But we are out in the middle. You know, if, if you identified where the middle of nowhere was from, a, <laughs> from an NGO financing standpoint, Pendleton's pretty much smack dab in the middle. We're, we are about three hours from all the big population centers, yeah. Portland, Spokane. I like uh, to say we're right Boise. in the middle of Portland and Idaho, or Boise, yeah. Exactly. We are right in the best place in the world, uh, but the worst place for fundraising. That's my opinion, too, yeah. yes. <laughs> so it's very difficult for us to, to consider uh, the long-term investment required to do a net zero facility for the next generation, and that's really what we're looking at, is developing a facility that long after Lynn is, is, and, and I are gone – it will be uh, functioning and attracting talent from from the uh, uh, veterinary community mm -hmm. and from the rehab community and and from the education uh, conservation education uh, uh, people to 
to our location out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, right now that facility, the dollars to, required to do it are, are uh, in, in, the, in the million, you know, low millions. Uh, mm -hmm. So to, to do it properly and completely. Instead, what we're doing is shoe, shoehorning it in with, with, as we have, but shoestringing it, I guess is better. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, to, to put together a facility, the, uh, the new education pens that were built uh, a couple of years ago cost us $90,000. Uh, that's a fraction of what the, the original design was. But again, it doesn't have the net zero component to it, the solar. Mm -hmm. So one of our next big efforts is to go ahead and solarize. And we think we've got the infrastructure uh, to hold the solar panels. We've just got to get get somebody to give us the the bank to to do that job. Sure. And then, as Lynn said, uh, Lynn's pretty modest about this, but she's got she uses her kitchen and and her front uh, uh, building in her house to do the the, <laughs> the, the clinic. Uh, the clinic. Long, okay, yeah. it's it's part of her home. She lives with with this every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, she needs a place to, to uh, she needs to be able to move out of that facility and have it totally dedicated to rehab. So we really need to build the clinic. Mm. And um, that's going to be uh, head and shoulders above the cost of doing just the solar. Yeah. Well, yeah. in the clinic, when we say clinic, that includes caretaker housing and intern housing. Because we get interns, um, that's one of the reasons we can um, have such a small staff. Uh, we're getting an intern this next week from, I can't remember exactly, Pennsylvania, the other side of the country. He's coming for eight weeks. Mm. Um, we've had interns from all over the United States and Puerto Rico come. Vietnam? Uh, well, he yeah, his he was from, his family was from Vietnam, that's yep. right. Um, but... Uh, but they get they come and they get a really good um, educational experience, and we get um, uh, energetic youth that helps yeah. do a lot of work. <laughs> That's something I, I've seen yeah, a little bit from uh, you know departments of natural resources from the area. What's really unique is that folks, you know, like maybe the USDA Ag Center is another example where folks uh, from all over the country and even world get to kind of communally operate on some of these same conservation goals, but then, you know, you passively get to kind of meet and, and understand all kinds of different cultures and, and folks. So, mm -hmm. so that's really interesting. So it's clear that, you know, financial needs are obviously something that um, are always on the wish list for you folks, but what else is, I mean, is it volunteership or what are some other areas of need that folks could look to, to provide? Well, uh, you know, we're volunteers are also incredibly important right now. Most of what we our volunteers do is help with transportation because birds come from you uh, know that bird. Somebody had to take the bird from from Enterprise down to Lagrand, and then if the bus isn't running, some we meet somebody in Lagrand, or so we need help that way. Uh, we get a or you know Oregon wherever. John Day, they birds come from all over the place, and so that's uh, we can certainly use a lot of help with volunteers. And there's a there's a volunteer application on our website. Mm -hmm. I guess and, this is a good opportunity to to share, yeah, your website, your address, um, and just ways we can kind of reach and learn about Blue Mountain Wildlife. Yeah, it's uh, bluemountainwildlife.org. It's pretty easy, <laughs> and awesome. then you can find the address. We're just about six miles south of town, south of Pendleton. Right up but by Mackay Reservoir is where I'd always reference yep, people. Across the highway from the reservoir, yep. But we have cameras now that, yes, are, and that are taking video uh, of, of birds doing interesting we things. Are, so. We are, it's, we're working on cameras for the various education birds, mm -hmm. and <clears> it's um, it's on YouTube now. It's not. We're not quite ready to make it go public. We're, we're working on it, though. Sure. And so then... Uh, You'll be able to watch the vultures, the turkey vultures. Yeah. I wanted to yeah. mention the social media, too, because I've yeah. noticed on Instagram, I don't know if, what else you operate in with social media, but the Instagram stuff is, is very good for just little informational bits. And Yep. that's Samantha's been working on that, Samantha and Winnie both. But um, I do the weekly newsletter, and it gets and it gets published on our website, and then it gets shared. We put it on Facebook and Instagram. That Those are kind of the... 
I, I generally leave most of that to someone else that's more... Um, <clears throat> you strike me as somebody who prefers to get your nose down and get the work done and not talk about well, it too much. So. I learned how to use a slide rule in school, you know? I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> He's not that old. He's not that old. <laughs> well, no, I did learn how to use a slide rule. <laughs> but um, computers and technology are... are um, I'm not... There are people far more talented than I am. Unfortunately, they, some of them work. Yes, good on you to delegate because <laughs> it's like whether or not you love the technology, that's how you reach people. And so Ex- y- you've got yes. to factor that in. But, yes. but the reality of the situation is uh, not to toot her horn, but this <laughs> woman works her tail off making <laughs> this organization a success and really doesn't have time for a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And I don't think people uh, get it when somebody's totally committed to, to, to something like this. It is all encompassing uh, of their of their time and their talents, and mm-hmm. she's she's tapped out. So, when we talk about the need for volunteers, um, we need we need people that are willing to commit uh, time to to uh, service on the board, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to fundraising for us, doing the things that Lynn doesn't have time for, and and doesn't choose to develop skill sets in because she's busy doing the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, uh, that that's important and. One of the things we're trying to do with our board is to uh, recruit board members that uh, are reflective of, of the entire service area. So um, getting people, we've got members from Tri-Cities. Uh, we've got Portland. Portland. Walla Walla. And, and you know, our, I have become a fan of Zoom mm-hmm. <laughs> these days. Makes so, it a lot easier so to do So we that. can actually, yeah, so we can, you know, our treasurer lives in Portland. And... Um, the Portland area, anyway, and so we can get together. You know, we don't have to get together physically in the same room and mm-hmm. still get work done. And then, and then the other area that, that Lynn, Lynn talked a little bit about the education effort really has uh, gone down quite a bit since the pandemic. Yeah, because of our inability to, to interface with the kids. I mean, it's just been challenging. But uh, building, rebuilding our, our education program uh, in a, is, is something that we, we're interested in doing, capable of doing, uh, but we need the people out there to, to do that. So uh, Lynn's phone rings Sorry. nonstop. Well, I, all right. I, I no, there's work got to be done. Got another bird. Got another bird. <laughs> I probably was dispatched or something. I don't know. It was banned. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, sorry. You're good. I thought I had turned my ringer down, but I obviously <laughs> the technology didn't. baffles. Me. She can use a slide rule. <laughs> I, I can't even do that anymore. But yeah, I am. I am technologically challenged. I will be the first to admit. Well, I appreciate you folks coming today, and I think you know you guys have done a nice job to paint the picture of some of the fine work that's already been done. Uh, I like the fact that we got to just highlight some of the those uh, awesome accomplishments, but you're also, you know, making it clear that there's plenty more work to be done and you've laid out some big goals for the organization going forward and ways that folks can uh, contribute or get involved. And so um, I really had a great time with you guys today and I appreciate you uh, doing this with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking again soon. So thanks for your time, guys.